It's the final hours of Jesus' life. A woman has anointed Jesus' body with a very expensive and fragrant oil. And meanwhile, Judas, one of the close companions of Jesus, one of the twelve, one of his closest friends, has gone to the chief priests and has worked together a plan to be able to have Jesus betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper with His disciples. And there in Mark chapter 14 and verse 26, we see Jesus then with His disciples walking to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is warning His disciples that they are going to fulfill the Scripture, that the shepherd is going to be struck, and that they are going to scatter. The disciples to say that there is no way that they're going to forsake Him. And a discussion ensues as Jesus tells them that they are all going to leave Him, and they say that's not going to be the case. Even if they have to die, the disciples say they will never, ever deny Jesus. And we cannot begin, I think, to comprehend the weight and the gravity of the situation that is on Jesus' mind at this moment as He now enters into Gethsemane. He knows He's about to die. And He knows that He's about to die in an excruciating way. To know that the crucifixion stands before you, to which historians repeatedly affirm is one of the most painful ways to die. There are historical accounts of people lasting a week on the cross in pain. Jesus is concerned for His disciples and concerned for their safety because He knows that one of His close companions, Judas, is bringing an army of soldiers to arrest Him. And I think it is with all those things in mind and with the the weight of the situation and realizing that it is the final hours before His death and it is the final moments of Jesus' freedom that we read these words in Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Let's stop there and going into the scene and you've got the other eleven apostles. He tells them to stop and wait here. He grabs his three closest, Peter, James, and John, and travels just a little bit further and has them stop. He says, wait here a minute. I'm going to pray. And as we've been looking at in this series at the way that Jesus prayed and the way that He taught us to pray, we now come into the most painful time and the time of anguish and despair in Jesus' life. And what we learn from what He says and how He handles this situation is certainly valuable for us as we learn to have a good prayer life to our Father. You have there in verse 33, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Christian Standard Version says that he was horrified at this moment. And that accurately represents 
the, the troubling nature of this Greek word here of speaking about the extreme anguish, the extreme difficulty of what he's about to go through. And verse 34 even shows it even in greater detail. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. His soul is crushed with sorrow. I don't know if I've always appreciated those words. I always think of Jesus as quite invincible. I don't always portray the humanity on Him as I ought. And I think of Him as the great Son of God, impervious to any emotion, impervious to any kind of the feelings that we're reading about here. And you have Him admitting to His disciples here that I am deeply, deeply sorrowful. The time that He is now looking at and what is about to transpire weighs greatly upon His mind, crushed with sorrow, even to death. And He tells His other three disciples, Peter, James, and John, I want you to wait here. I want you to watch. Stay awake with me here. Because I'm deeply disturbed at this moment. The Luke account tells us something that I think is really fascinating that the other gospel accounts do not give us. And it says in Luke 22 and verse 44, And being in agony, he's not even on the cross yet. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, living in South Florida, I have had sweat rolling off of my face. I've had that. You go outside and do any amount of work, particularly in the summertime, and, and you will know that it's just profuse. But he's not exercising. He's not outside building something. He's not planting or mulching the yard. He's not doing anything of any physical exertion that you would be able to put on him and say, now why is Jesus sweating like this? It's because of the agony of what he's about to go through. I want you to consider that that's what Luke is trying to say here. Understand the gravity of the situation that he now throws himself to the ground, he lays down on the ground, and it says there that the sweat is just pouring off of him. Being in agony at this moment. I think this destroys the concept that Joel Osteen's and those in the religious world like to run around saying, that, well, if you become a Christian, you'll never have any distress. You'll never have any suffering. You'll never have any problems. Just come to the Lord, think happy thoughts, and things are going to be great. It wasn't true with our Savior. In deep distress, his soul crushed with sorrow, in agony, as he is here praying. And I want us to see that this is not a reflection on his spirituality. This is not some sort of statement that, well, he wasn't a very good believer in God. Uh, this isn't a statement about, well, he must not have much faith then because, because he's in this agony and in this distress. Please. We know that's not the case. Sometimes we feel like we have to put on the perfect facade around one another 
as if, well, everything is fine. I'm a Christian and yes, I know that I'm going through great difficulties. I know I've got all these problems, but there's a smile on my face and everything's great. We're allowed to be real. We're allowed to admit to one another that we're suffering. We're allowed to admit to one another that we are in distress. We are in agony. We're in pain right now. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing unchristian about that. There's nothing anti-God about that to understand that there are going to be times like this. And we are going to experience those times. And that does not mean we don't have faith in God to get us through. It doesn't mean that we are not relying upon Him. But it does mean bad things happen. Even to Christians. And that's alright. We have to understand that. And I think it is interesting to see that during Jesus' extreme hour of agony, as He's about to be arrested, as He is hours away from His death, He turns to His Father to pray. And we learn something very valuable here. We learn something very important. We turn to God when these times come. When things are difficult and things are hard and the time of distress comes, it's not a time to try to go independent. It's not a time to think, well, we'll just take care of it ourselves. And it's not a time to begin questioning and saying, well, God must have left me. I must have done something wrong. And that's why all these bad things are happening. I've remarked many times that I believe there's been great damage done by the religious world that, that says everything happens for a reason, that uh, if you were just a, a good person, that uh, these things wouldn't happen. You must have done something wrong. These things are foolish. What has Jesus done wrong at this point? What sins have He committed to bring about this kind of agony to this point? He hasn't done anything wrong. He has not missed the mark in any way. He has lived perfectly as the Holy Son of God. He has trusted completely in the Father throughout His whole life. And yet, it is a time of distress. It's a time of agony. A time of grief. Before I leave this text, I would like to just do a quick aside. That it doesn't say that Jesus bled from His head. That's not what the the verse says. It doesn't say that His anguish was so great that the capillaries in His head burst and thus blood poured down onto the ground. There's an illustration being described here. It's a picture of as if you had a wound, how much is flowing down, but not actual blood, but picturing the amount of sweat of how it's just pouring off of Him. And so we can save the the medical examiners who go through and talk about this possibility of, of having sweat mixed with blood. That's not what the writer is trying to tell us. He's trying to tell us that the distress and the agony is so great that even though he is not exerting himself physically, the exertion upon his emotions and upon his mind is so great that he is sweating as if it was blood pouring down his face. And verse 35 tells us, And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. 
Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Ah, this is so fascinating as he, he prays to God. We learn something important. Talk to your Father. I, I, I hope in the lessons that we've done as we looked at the model prayer in Matthew 6 earlier and now we come to the Gethsemane prayer, He does the same thing that He instructed His disciples to do. The first words out of His mouth, Father, I'm talking to my Father here. It's not a time of extraordinary formality. It's not a time of having to say certain key words or code words here. It is just an attempt to talk honestly and openly before our Father to tell Him what is on our mind, to tell Him what we are experiencing, to tell Him our desire at that moment. And we see Jesus doing that here. As He prays to God, Father, the Abba being the Aramaic of that word, Father, Father, if it's possible, as all things are possible with you, remove this cup. If you pick up any number of books, there's a lot of information about what he's asking here. He asks for the cup to be removed from him, and what is being entailed by that? What does that mean? And I would suppose the majority of the scholars say that this is the cup of God's divine wrath. You may not be surprised that I totally disagree. <laughs> I have a tendency to do that, but I just do not think that this is what we are talking about. I do not believe that we are at the brink of God executing all of the sins and the wrath deserved to mankind now being channeled upon Jesus Himself as He's going to now nail His Son instead of us. I just don't see that that's exactly the point. This is not the pouring out of the cup of divine wrath. I will grant that the Old Testament and even the book of Revelation certainly use the imagery of this. There certainly can be found in the Scriptures the picture of the cup of divine wrath as God would pour out that cup unmixed upon Israel on a number of occasions as prophesied uh, repeatedly by His prophets. But I think Jesus tells us what the cup is. Because there's a fascinating discussion that happens between James and John that reveal it to us back over in Matthew chapter 20 that I'd like to read for you. Matthew 20 and verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him, speaking about coming to Jesus, with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. This is an interesting question. As you have the mother say, when you come into your kingdom, be sure my boys get a good spot. <laughs> you know, they've been serving you these past three years. You know, they've sacrificed everything. Be sure they've got a good place of honor when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response is not immediately, no. 
But he asks the question back, are you able to drink the cup I am about to drink? And they say yes. And Jesus says, you will drink it. It's not the cup of divine wrath that they are going to drink. And Jesus does not describe that he is drinking the divine wrath of God. What is he going to drink? Suffering. Are you able to endure the suffering like I am about to endure the physical suffering? Are you able to endure the anguish and the agony that is going to come upon you if you are going to make this request of me? You do not understand what is entailed to be a follower of me and to be in this kingdom. Are you able to grasp the amount of suffering that you will endure? And James and John say, we will accept that suffering. And Jesus says, you better be able to because it's coming. The agony and the suffering and the anguish that I am about to endure, you also will endure, as those apostles most certainly did. And as we have read full well as we studied Acts in our Sunday morning class, and we have seen what they endured, and we see the punishment, and we see the suffering, and all they gave up for the cause of Christ. The cup is being referred to as the cup of suffering. As Jesus is before the Father and says, sees this amount of suffering that is in front of him and asks for it to be removed. The New Living Translation even renders it that way in saying, please take this cup of suffering away from me. This is, I think, the picture. And what we learn is that we can speak honestly to God. We can just open our heart up And just lay it bare before God. That is one of the most fascinating things that I believe I learned from the series that we were doing on the Psalms on Sunday night was just the raw emotion that you read these psalmists writing and praying and singing before God. It's staggering. So many times I'd read that psalm and say, you can't say that to God. (laughs) You can't dare utter those words. How dare you say something like that? He's going to french fry you for saying something as as brazen as that. Not with the heart of humility. With the heart of humility, we can come before God and we can lay it out there. And we can express ourselves to God. And we can tell Him what is going on. And we can express the raw emotions of how we feel. And we can tell Him, this is what is happening in my life. These are the things I don't understand. This is the suffering I'm going through. This is my agony at this moment. And Jesus does that. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. But as the rest of that, in the near very same breath of verse 36, that is so important, yet not what I will, but what you will. In staring at the agony, in staring at the suffering, still, what matters most is not my physical comfort, not my wishes, not the way I want things to go, not for me to take the easy way out, but true disciples want God's will to be accomplished no matter what. And that's what's really built into these words is I think we see the humanity of our Lord saying, I am seeing what is ahead of me. 
I see the cross. I see the lashes. I see the whipping and flogging that I'm about to endure. I see all of what is about to transpire. I see my disciples forsaking me and running. I foresee that they are going to deny me. I see all of this unfolding. I don't want to go through it. It's going to be hard. But I want God's will to be accomplished no matter what. And it's a reminder for us when we pray to God that we are not God. And it's about what God wants. There's a fascinating, growing thing that's happening in in Christianity, quote-unquote, today of people writing books of, like, disappointed with God. God didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted. And how we deal with, you know, when, when God doesn't do things the way you want Him to do it. And the disappointment factor and the frustration when God doesn't do things the, the way we want. Really. <laughs> Who are we to be upset about the way God does things. That's where Job entered and crossed the line, was when his wisdom was greater than God's. When he said, if I could just have a moment with God, if I could just have a counsel with Him, He would surely vindicate me and set all this right. Who are we to be disappointed with God and how He does things? The problem is, we treat prayer as if we are the God. And God, He has to do what we want to do. And I've offered my prayer, and why haven't you done this? And if you don't do things the way that I ask, I'm going to leave you and forsake you, because this is the way it ought to be. We have imported our selfish, independent American spirit on top of prayer. As if God should do anything for us because we have demanded it or asked it. Who are we to be disappointed with God? It is as if God is the pinata and prayer is the stick. And if we just keep praying hard enough, it will all just come raining down on us and we'll get all of our goodies. Are we kidding ourselves? God's will first. We pray to God about our desires. We lay it out to Him and with raw emotion. But let's not forget what the most important thing is that I want God's will to be done. And so we tell the Father what we want, but we understand what prayer is about. When we saw this, when we studied Matthew chapter 6, it's about aligning our desires to God's will. And I sincerely believe that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think Jesus is saying, I want to quit. I don't think when He says, let the cup pass, remove the cup, He's saying, there's got to be another way. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think that's an appropriate way to perceive what's happening. I think He's saying, the emotions, the physical nature, all of it is screaming, This is going to be hard. This is going to be painful. This is going to be agony. Lord, Father, I need to align my spirit 
my will and wishes to your will. Let your will be done, not mine. This is the way I feel. Remove this cup. But I've got to align myself to God's purpose. Your will be done. That's what our prayer needs to look like. Tell God how you feel. Tell God your wishes. Tell God the way you would like it to go. But understand what we're doing is trying to move our life to be in line with God's purpose. It's not that I'm trying to bully God into doing things my way. And if He doesn't do it my way, I'll be disappointed, frustrated, and upset. It's trying to move my spirit to be accepting and understanding of God's purpose and God's will, and I will obey it no matter what. And I think Jesus, in these painful, agonizing hours, reflects that so perfectly. He didn't want, in terms of physical pain, to just go, oh, that'll be no big deal. He didn't walk into it like that. It was agonizing. He saw the road that lay ahead of him. He knew what was about to happen. In fact, in just moments, Judas is going to walk up to him, kiss him on the cheek and say, Rabbi. (laughs) Which, to me, would have been the ultimate test of self-control. How dare you call me teacher as you are turning me over to the authorities. Please. He's aligning himself to the will of God. In verse 37, we find something interesting. It says, And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He comes to his disciples and they're sleeping. And please do not criticize them. Please do not jump on them for what they're doing here. It is not three in the afternoon. It is not ten o'clock at night. It is probably one or two in the morning at the earliest. We are in the middle of the night. And how long has Jesus been gone? Jesus comes back and says, Now can't you stay awake an hour? Can you? Some of us, you get things dark and we sit down and we're we're gone. (laughs) We're out. (laughs) We just fall right asleep. Just boom, it's on the couch. We're we're done. It's late. It's been a very long day. There's been extensive teaching from Jesus. There's been all the preparations made for the Passover. The Lord's Supper's been instituted. Judas has left the room. He's got the betrayers. They're talking about how many swords do we need to bring to go to this place that we're about to go to. It's been a very jam-packed day. And they're sleeping. I want you to identify with them, not criticize them. I want you to identify with them and see that that's us. That is us. That's exactly what we would probably be doing. Is We would be trying so hard to stay awake. Are you sleeping? With all of our good intentions. And I think the way that we identify with them is this. 
What the disciples are doing here is not inherently sinful. We wouldn't be able to point to the disciples and say, oh, well, they're sinning here. No. But they're failing to see the moment. They are failing to see how important this moment is. They don't grasp the gravity of what's taking place. They don't understand what's about to happen. And Jesus comes and says, shouldn't you be praying that you don't enter into temptation? They don't understand that that's about to come. They don't understand the temptation before them. And I think that's exactly where we sit. That we often do things that are not inherently sinful, but we fail to see the great need for prayer at that moment. I'm not doing something that's wrong. I'm not doing something that's sinful. But I'm failing to recognize that at this moment I need to talk to my Father. I'm failing to recognize that I need to align myself to God's purposes at this very moment. And I think that's us. I think that is exactly us. We neglect God, not for things that are sinful, but just because there's other things we want to do. There's things that we want to take care of. There's things that we want to accomplish. Many of us are not going to be back tonight. Not because you're going to go do something sinful. It's because there's other stuff you want to do. Many of us don't pray. Not because we're doing something sinful. It's just other stuff I want to do. Other stuff I have to take care of. Many of us aren't reading the scriptures. Not because we're engaged in all these horrible sins. We're just busy. We've got other things to do. That's where the disciples are right here. They're not doing something sinful. They're just not focused. They fail to see how important the situation is. They fail to grasp what is necessary at the moment. They need to be praying. They don't understand that within moments... They are going to hightail it and run. They don't understand that they're going to leave their Lord as the soldiers take Him away. They don't understand that they are going to be tempted to deny Him over and over and over again. And that's our same fault. Is that often we're just not doing what is in our spiritual interests. We're doing other things. They're not sinful things. Nothing sinful about the TV in and of itself. Nothing sinful about reading the paper in and of itself. Nothing sinful about our hobbies, relaxation, and recreation. Absolutely not. And we all need those breaks. We certainly do. But many times we're putting those things ahead of what is really important. And we fail to see what is necessary for our spirituality and what is necessary for us as Christians. I think the other thing that is also fascinating about this text is here we have the disciples letting Jesus down again. And that happens so many times. And you have Jesus somewhat incredulous, it seems. Simon, are you asleep? (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) Don't you understand that everything that we have talked about, everything that we have been working for is now coming to this very moment How could you be sleeping? 
And it just simply reminds us that even our own brethren are going to let us down. We can get so upset when we have one another fail us. In our times of great difficulty, when we're going through times of suffering and distress, so-and-so didn't follow up with me. They didn't pray for me like I asked them to. They didn't call me like I wish. I hadn't been there for a while. And I'm surprised that nobody came and saw me. Well, we all need to do better. Understand, we're going to all let each other down. I, just It's going to happen. And I find it funny as I... I read one preacher point out is that when our brethren let us down, what we have are biblical friendships because that's what happens here. <laughs> you just have a total letdown take place. It's going to happen. And so we cannot throw our faith off because of that. We shouldn't be upset about that and, and, and just lose everything over that. There's going to be times where I'm going to be in need and you will not be there when I need you. And there will be times when you will be in great need in times of distress, and I will not be there. And we certainly need to do better in our being awake and spiritually mindful of one another. But we understand as well that those failures happen. As in the, we're going to see in the story, the failure happens three times. As Jesus was now going to go and pray again, I encourage you to turn over to Matthew because... Mark synthesizes the rest of what happens, and Matthew gives us a little bit more information in Matthew chapter 26. In verse 42, we're told there again, a second time he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus continues praying. And we learn another valuable lesson here, that we can keep praying the same thing again and again, and again. Maybe it's just me. Sometimes I feel like when I pray to God, well, I've already told Him, I don't need to tell Him anymore. <laughs> I've made my request. I'll leave it at that. I don't want to be a nag, and so I'll just, just leave it at that. I don't, want to, I don't want to just keep pursuing it. I think it's interesting that we learn something that Jesus, after uttering these words in agony and heartfelt emotion. After the disciples are sleeping, he turns and he asks God the exact same thing. He prays it again. We can do that. I love Jesus tells a parable about this unjust judge who gets worn out by this widow for justice. <laughs> And it was a parable to teach His disciples to keep praying and to not lose heart. Don't give up praying. Tell God again. And pray it to Him again. And tell Him one more time. And when you've told Him today all the things that you want to tell Him about things that are going on in your life, tomorrow tell it to Him again. And tell it to Him again that night. And again, it's not as if God doesn't know. We studied that in Matthew chapter 6. It's not as, as if God has no idea what's going on here. It's not as if we are browbeating Him and trying to shove Him into a corner. He knows. We're showing the earnestness of our plea and we're aligning ourselves to God's will. 
There's always something when my children ask me about something again and again and again. It, it sparks my attention a little bit more. I see the earnestness in what they're saying. I like to see that. I like to see that care and concern when they desire something. I know what they need. But it's nice to see that they grasp it and ask of it repeatedly. We're just simply showing our desire and our earnestness to pray it before God. And we're repeatedly aligning ourselves to God's will. Say it again. We're in agony. I need God's will to be done first. Verse 43, And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. What would you have said the second time? You lousy, rotten disciples. (laughs) Didn't I just tell you to stay awake last time? And now I've only been gone a little while and now you're doing this again? Get some coffee and wake up. I I just would have tore them apart. Verse 44, So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time. Catch this saying the same words again. You can pray to the Father over and over and over again, showing your earnestness and trying to get your heart and emotions and mind aligned to God's purpose. I'll keep saying it until I can get myself accepting of the circumstances that are before me. Until I can get myself putting my trust in God as I go through this difficult time. Verse 45, then he came to his disciples and said, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And now I just only can imagine the scene. As you could hear the sound of the soldiers. And you can see the smoke coming off of the blazing torches. As Judas leads the way through Gethsemane. To identify that Jesus in this dark area of trees. Here is the one that you need to arrest. And so what I want to leave you with from this lesson and certainly from this series as we look at Jesus' prayer and I'll ask you this question. What was the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer? It was an emphatic no. Three times in great despair and agony, his soul crushed in deep distress. He prays to the Father. This is going to be hard. Remove the cup. Not your will. Not my will, but your will be done. And the Father's answer is no. Because the Father's will was that this must be done. This must be done to accomplish God's great supreme plan. It had to be done. There's no other option. This is what must be accomplished. And I hope that will help us consider that, A, we shouldn't be so distraught when we hear no answers. If the Father said no to our Lord Jesus, 
there will certainly be times that he's going to say no to me. There's certainly going to be times where I'm going to get the no answer. That there's going to be a particular path that I want. I want particular action, a particular course of of life, particular circumstances to happen or to stop. And there will be times that the answer will be no. We do not have the, the Son here. We do not have Jesus throwing off His faith and giving up because the answer was no. He entrusted Himself to the Father. This is God's will. This is God's purpose. I will accept my circumstances, which is what we learn. Prayer does not always change the outcome, but it ought to change us. Prayer does not always change the outcome. We can pray fervently over and over and over repeatedly. But that doesn't necessarily change the outcome. It ought to change us. It ought to change who we are. It should cause us to do a number of things. I'll leave you these final three things. It should cause us to yield to our circumstances. Praying to God over and over again should alleviate the burden and cause us to realize I'm depending upon God. He knows my plight. He knows the circumstance. He's going to act in His best interest because that's what I want. I want God's plan to be accomplished. And so therefore, now that I've made my wishes known to God, I yield. I am not God. It is not going to be my way or the highway. I will yield to the circumstances. And therefore, I'm putting my trust in Him. He'll get me through. No matter how hard the the challenge is, no matter how great the suffering, no matter how deep the despair, I trust God. He'll get me through. And we will learn something from the distress. By a time, we could do a whole matter about that and the implications of what that meant with Jesus. As the Scriptures point out, those very thoughts. He showed His trust in God. He relied upon Him. And He had to die. The deliverance came after death. Three days later, Jesus raises Him from the tomb. The Lord takes Jesus and shows Him to be the Son of God and sits Him at the right hand. A powerful picture. Lord willing, we could talk about more of that tonight. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2 tonight. Exciting picture about the enthronement of Jesus, Son of God. We invite you to come to the Lord this very morning. We invite you to realize that God has done all of this for you. He yielded His Son and turned Him over to death so that you and I could have forgiveness of sins and you and I could have eternal life. Don't be dismayed when things don't go well. Don't lose your faith when distress and suffering comes. It is the perfect opportunity to talk to your Father to express to Him your needs, tell Him your wishes, rely upon Him with all of your heart, and trust and tell Him His will must be done. I will yield because I want His glory above my own. Turn to Him this morning. Repent from your sins. Be immersed in water to have your sins washed away. 
Won't you come to Jesus now while we stand and while we sing?